Hello, Hare Krishna. Uh, we're about Hare to... Krishna. Hare Krishna. Actually, <laughs> I wonder if they can see you there. I don't know. Because, um... So, uh, I'm going to be interviewed now regarding uh, the difference between Vedic culture and New Age culture. The differences, if there are any. So, uh, so why don't you go ahead and, uh, and we'll, we'll start. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, my uh, my uh, inkling or my my guess is that most of these new age words that people are using, they actually have a real basis in the Vedas, although it's not often clear. So here's one thing that we've all heard is very common in English. I'm spiritual, but not religious. <laughs> Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, spirits. Okay, so um, so let's try to give some reasonable definitions for all those terms. Uh, yeah. As far as spiritual but not religious, um, which kind of sounds like the New Age anyway. Um, if we use as basic definitions that when pe the way people use it, we're not talking about necessarily, you know, the best dictionary definition of these words, but how do people out there use these words? I think they mean something like spiritual is a state of consciousness, sort of an internal state, and maybe even how you treat people. Like, in other words, your behavior manifests the way you feel about other people. Like, do you love them? Do you ignore them? Or just how do you think about other souls? And religious perhaps means like external behavior, observable behavior. You like, like in ISKCON, that would mean you get up at a certain time, you go to a temple room and you engage in a Mongol arti or you, you comply with, you perform a certain spiritual or religious practice, ceremonies, rituals, and so on. And as we know, some people are very compliant with religious rules and rituals. Uh, they're just not nice people. And, and so obviously yeah. this, this distinction, distinction between religious and spiritual is not sort of an ISKCON jargon, just karmis being karmis. You know, there's actually, <laughs> there, there's actually some truth behind it. I mean, there is... As I say sometimes, religious institutions or just religious people are probably have, have the greatest opportunity to be hypocrites because, mm. because religious institutions or individuals make by far the grandest claims like we are connecting with God, we can connect you to God, we can offer you eternal life, you will become, well, born again. You'll become a new person. You'll be reborn as a spiritual person and all that. And then, so when people are making those, at times, grandiose claims, and they're making those claims, and then they're just like, they act like, well, I can't say the words here on air, on the air, but um, you know the words. I mean, everyone has their favorite word, the A word, the word this word, the that word. So, in other words, they, they sometimes seem to be more arrogant or more or colder 
just less caring than ordinary people who may not even believe in God. And and so this, this is a problem. And uh, if you study the history of religions, you can find in practically every religion that was around long enough, historically great religions, find a lot of piety, a lot of real devotion, and then a lot of hypocrisy. I don't mean the same people are doing both those things, but so, um, so yeah, so there is that skepticism nowadays. And then you said, just to, mm. quickly, New Age and Vedic, throw that out, try to give some definitions, and New Age is kind of a catch-all term. It's, uh, let's see if I get some. Okay, <clears throat> and I quote from the Wikipedia Bible, the Wiki Bible. New Age is a term applied to a range of spiritual religious beliefs and practice, practices that grew rapidly in the Western world during the 1970s. Presci precise scholarly definitions of the New Age differ in their emphasis, blah, blah, blah. So the rest is blah, blah, blah. But, so if I can venture here a sort of a, a rough definition of New Age movements or New Age uh, phenomena, they definitely strongly reconnect with uh, pagan magic, pagan mysticism. Mm -hmm. It's kind of going back to the roots of Western civilization, which are pre-Christian, pre-Judeo-Christian. And so that fascination with, I mean, look at Harry Potter. I mean, that's about as pagan as it gets. So, uh, mm -hmm. so Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings and all these things, they are distinctly non-Judeo-Christian. And it, so I think the New Age thing is, of course, it's, it's, it involves yoga. It, 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 it uh, pulls things not only from the pagan tradition, but going to India. Obviously, yoga is a big part of it. So it's kind of mysticism and magical, mystic and magical traditions that are non-Judeo-Christian and come chiefly from the East, either from, and, and even in Europe, I mean, a lot of the magic and, and, and mystical traditions of uh, pagan Europe, Greco-Roman Europe, came from farther East, from Persia, and, and some of them probably filtered in from India, or a lot of them did so. And of course, they're popularized because nowadays, um, kind of this postmodern subjectivism, which also characterizes new, the New Age phenomena, which is that everyone has their own truth, and as long as mm -hmm. you don't, as long as you don't think seriously about life, that won't be a problem for you. Because if you, if you, yeah, if you, you know, because if you take that seriously that everyone has their own truth, that basically means there is no truth and there, there are only, there are only psychological states. There's no actual objective truth, which means that no one really has a truth in, in the old fashioned sense of the word. So, but anyway, go ahead. You wanted to jump in? Well, that was great. Uh, one thing I didn't realize, I'm glad you mentioned is the pagan aspect. So, the, the, the spiritual side has these pagan aspects. There's also the postmodern aspect. 
I think you're right on the money there. Now, it seems to me that in in the Shastra, in our, you know, Bhaktivedanta tradition, we, right, right. we're the scripture, yes. We the Vedas. <laughs> we are we are uh, should I say educated? We we learn that we should be spiritual and religious, right? We need both of them, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, I read an article by. Oh my God, what's his name? Houston Smith. I'm glad I remembered his name. He passed away, but he was a very prominent teacher of world religions in the in the 20th century, and a friend of devotees and you know a real gentleman. He wrote a very famous textbook, on undergraduate textbook on world religions. It was used very widely, so he was he was quite well known. And uh, so I was in uh, visiting a friend in uh, the Nashville area, actually my friend Gayatri, and in his house on the coffee table, the coffeeless coffee table, you know, Vedic culture. There was. Um, <laughs> There was a magazine called Tricycle, and at first I thought it was a Cadillac, a catalog, catalog for children's bicycles. But then I saw that no, it was, it was actually a Buddhist magazine called Tricycle, and so you know Tricycle. So, and and there was an, he had he had an article in that in that magazine which I read, and I, I found it very helpful. He was arguing about the dangers of separating spirituality and religiosity and so if you go with these somewhat I don't want to say crude but you know rough but very useful definitions that a spirit that spirituality refers to an internal state a state of consciousness and so on a loving state and and religiosity refers to sort of more external observable behavior rituals vows and all, you know all the all the different observable behavioral spiritual practices, and he said that the danger is that if you if you sort of vote for spirituality and you think you don't need religiosity, then there's there's no check and balance. I mean, I can do any crazy thing and say, well, that's just external. Inside, I'm enlightened, and we've actually seen this. We've seen all kinds of. Uh, what we lovingly call in ISKCON bogus gurus. I don't mean to say that all gurus are bogus, just that that's just one group of people. And and the reason mm -hmm. I say bogus, it's 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 a harsh term, but it you know, if the uh if the insult fits, I guess wear it. But I mean we say bogus gurus because they it, people who claim to be gurus but seduce women disciples, which is criminal, even in the ordinary sense of the term, like anyone in a position of authority, you know, a psychologist, a lawyer, a doctor. And so that's, that's like, you know, well, I don't want to say epidemic in these times we live in now, but, you know, there, there was a major problem with, with gurus. In fact, most of the high-profile gurus that came over in the 60s, mid and late 60s, to America and were sort of rock star gurus, uh, almost all the really famous ones did end up having very inappropriate affairs with female followers. And of course, the great exception is Prabhupada, someone who's absolutely, mm. absolutely um, 
had absolute awesome yeah absolute integrity and and behave as a real pure soul so if someone claims to be a spiritual leader and this is of course east and west seduces uh followers or milks them to get all kinds of money money they can't really afford to give you know for the teachers or the pre or the the preacher's own luxury like there was one famous preacher in north america that said that god's going to call me back to heaven and i'm going to leave all my flock if you don't buy me an executive jet so you know stuff like that and of course collecting for mostly working class people so if you say that oh, i don't have to follow all these religious rules i'm spiritual then of course that's not a good move because because just to add because if someone really is spiritual if i'm really in god consciousness then i would not want to do degraded things mm. if i'm actually in touch with my soul if i if i know who i really am i am a pure soul why in the world am i all about the body you know when, when the lights are out or when the doors are locked and so it's just gross hypocrisy on the other hand if you have religiosity people follow different religious rules or at least convince the public they do it, it or, or, or let's say if someone is religious but it's just not a nice person we've all met people who never met a religious rule they didn't fall in love with you know they they for them the supreme collectible is rules and you know this rule and that rule and the other rule and they and they kind of punish people with these rules like you didn't do this or you didn't do that or you should do this or that they're just not nice people i mean you can probably find like an like an agnostic on your block who's a nicer person and so and so the point so you really need to keep both these together religious because a really spiritual person will happily act religiously and if someone understands why they're being religious they will also become spiritual so goswami i want to apply some aristotelian thomism here real quick oh my god <laughs> um oh my god did, he didn't see it coming he didn't know what hit him but it was Arist aristotelian <laughs> for those of you who don't understand uh, aristotle of course was the great philosopher for you know through the renaissance and everything and and uh, Thomas of Aquinas, as they say, sort of baptized Aristotle. He took this magnificent yeah. logical philosophical structure of Aristotle's thinking and he applied it to Christian doctrine. So, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, that's exactly what I intend to do and what I've been doing. Um, so it seems like, so we, we need spirituality and religiousness, and it seems there's also a golden mean and especially in our society for Krishna consciousness, it seems wise and logical to err closer towards the side of spirituality because it's in our name, Krishna consciousness. We are aiming for this state of God consciousness. So while we do need both, if you know, we don't exactly always want to be exactly in the middle, so the golden mean, it seems to me, is closer to the spiritual side. Do you agree with that? Uh, sort of. I mean, I appreciate <laughs> what you're saying. I would. We what we have to be aware of 
is to be sort of caught in a contemporary dialectic. And by that I mean, you know, like, uh, it's Newton's third law of motion, every action produces an equal and opposite reaction, also called the pendulum effect. And of course, Hegel, the philosopher Hegel, applied this to his philosophy of history and said that history actually moves dialectically in the sense that you have a certain state in a society or in the world, which is a thesis, and then it generates its own, just like a pendulum, when you pull it so far to this side, it sort of creates the energy which pulls it to the other side. You know, and so when a historical culture becomes a little unbalanced or becomes a little too much to one side, it actually creates its own antithesis. So if the pendulum's near the center, the opposite motion it creates is not very, it's only a few degrees. So the pendulum is relatively stable. So I'm saying because perhaps we have lived through a period in ISKCON history in which at least some of us in some places have seen a lot more religiosity than spirituality in some people, including some people who have positions of leadership. Therefore, we kind of get sucked into this pendulum motion where we say, okay, I can't take this anymore. All these people who are, you know, get up really early and do this ritual and perform that thing, but they're not nice people and they don't treat others well and they're not really compassionate. They don't really understand me. They don't really encourage me. So I'm heading for the other side. You know, it reminds me of that song, you know, Jojo left his home in Tucson, Arizona. So I'm, you know, so kind of like I'm leaving where I am now. But the trap there is that we go to the other extreme. And it's a very natural thing. Well, I, I understand, but and I know, this I, is... And I know you don't want to go there. I know that's not what you were talking about. You weren't talking about going to an extreme. But I think that if you live uh, in a... No, 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 no. I'm, I'm saying what, when, you, when you fully accept it as kind of a trinity, if you will, it, where it's not just two extremes, but there's a third item there, then there's no longer a bouncing back and forth. What's the, what, like, what, like, what's the third item? The, the mean, oh, the middle. The mean. Oh, it's the balance or the... Yeah, yeah. I, They're so... I, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that you're right, I, I, but I, I would just say it that if you're somewhere around the middle, that's good enough. <laughs> you know, if you're because, <laughs> like some people, for example, some people, if they're not kind of strict about the religious side and they sort of slacken there, uh, you know, their whereabouts may soon be unknown. I mean, they may really sort of glide off the off the graph or mm. something. So, so some people are sort of holding on to dear life for certain principles. Other people, I know myself, uh, I'm sympathetic to what you're saying because if someone is following basic principles, they're not like a super sadhana athlete where they're, you know, practicing everything, but they follow the basic principles. For example, Prabhupada, I don't want to minimize the importance of, let's say, going to a morning class or seeing the deities. But Prabhupada did require for initiation, which is a big deal, just two things. Don't do four harmful activities and chant japa. And that's all Prabhupada required. 
So yeah. I, I think if someone is, you know, doing their best and is a good person and really wants to serve and wants to help others and is is doing their best, then yeah, I, I think that's great. And and personally, I would agree with you in this sense. I would rather hang out with someone. If I had to choose, let's say I, I, ha I was stuck for a few days on an island and I had to choose between a person who maybe, you know, was basically decent and followed base, you know, basic principles, but wasn't like really great at all the spiritual practices, but was a nice person. And the other choice was someone who is very strict, but is just not such a nice person, not, then I would absolutely choose the first one. So, I mean, no question. I would pay, okay. I would pay to avoid the second one and be with the first <laughs> one. I would pay good money for that. Yes, I think I would too. So we agree there. All right, well, let's move on. Um, here's here's another common uh, meme in like the new age is follow your bliss, follow your excitement. So where does that come into play with the Vedas? Well, what if someone's bliss is raping beautiful women? You know, what if someone's excitement is, I don't know, some, you know, like going out for a steak. It's, um. You know, things like follow your bliss, there, there's a bit of imitation here. If you are a relatively pure soul, you know, you've done the work, you've actually done the spiritual work, you're not trying to, you know, get a, take it all cheaply. You're, you really, you put in the effort. It's like if you want to be a great musician, you have to practice and practice and practice. And so, or, or take professional sports. You know, when I was a kid, I was just really into, you know, sports and, you know, baseball players and football players and everything. And so, um, what I say is for every athlete in any sport, soccer, whatever, for every athlete that becomes a really, you know, renowned professional athlete, there were a hundred or maybe hundreds of other people that had the same talent. What's the difference? he or she really earned it. They worked for it. Or if you talk about people that have, let's say, basic musical talent, but someone becomes a great musician. Why? Because they earned it. And so, why, you know, someone becomes a doctor. Someone kind of likes to heal, is a healer, but someone actually goes through all the trouble to become a doctor. So, if you look at the nature of reality, reality, rewards, diligence, discipline, practice, the real world rewards that. And so uh, if you have done the work, if you've applied yourself with discipline and, and dedication, and now you're a relatively pure soul, yeah, follow your bliss. But if you haven't done that work, if I haven't done the work, and I still have material desires. I'm still kind of into my body more than I'm really into the soul. And I talk soul because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's good talk, but, but I'm, I'm kind of still about my body. And then I follow my bliss. Where's that going to take me? 
it's like just to give one little analogy imagine someone that has not really learned to play music they just haven't put the work in and so the you know person sits down at the keyboard or whatever and say yeah just follow your bliss you know we're going to be running for the exits <laughs> so yeah spiritual life is like everything you know you get what you pay for mm. there are two things i'd want to maybe add on to that um so uh in the in the scriptures you know we hear uh we read about symptoms of someone who is in uh transcendental ecstasy and you know ananda real spiritual bliss right, right. such as um hairs standing on end weeping tears you know the and so if we if we have a very specific definition of bliss based on the vedas like this and we say follow that bliss it seems like that might actually work for both worlds the new age and the, the vedas does that make sense well yes i would say i mean i follow my bliss but with a caveat um, <laughs> i've always got caveats you know i never run out of caveats so um because what is bliss ultimately bliss comes from love bliss real bliss mm. spiritual bliss comes from love and so if you're feeling spiritual bliss real spiritual bliss not just something which can be even neurologically induced but you're feeling real spiritual bliss then it's because you've discovered real spiritual love and if you love someone you try to please them so the only spiritual things on the market are souls i mean what else is spiritual you are spiritual i'm spiritual ultimately and and god is spiritual and and so um the spiritual world is a world where everything and everyone is conscious where there, there's just enlightened conscious beings and so to feel spiritual bliss is to be deeply in spiritual love and when you love someone you try to please them so how do you try to please a soul you wouldn't give a soul a hamburger you wouldn't try to seduce a soul because i mean i mean seduce their body or try to drag that soul into absorption in their external body i mean all those things are would be perverse and just total yuck and and so therefore if you're really in bliss to follow your bliss is to follow your love which means to try to please god to try to please other pure souls by acting in a completely spiritual way so you cannot legitimately even grammatically semantically you can't really follow bliss and end up in a materialistic situation you can't follow bliss and end up in bed with someone else's wife you know you can't follow bliss and end up you know taking a drug i mean you just or or you can't do those things you can't follow your bliss and end up participating in the brutal slaughter of innocent animals and and because following bliss is following spiritual love which means love of your own soul not your body your soul and other souls not their bodies and the supreme soul god so if you understand all that by all means follow your bliss 
Mm, excellent. Um, I, I see another golden mean triad pop up in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you, you mentioned earlier about how reality rewards diligence and hard work. And uh, so that kind of ties in with the like kind of religiousness aspect. And then the other extreme, and here's another word I wanted to bring up with you is manifesting. This is, you know, people who follow the law of attraction, the secret and, and other new age things, you know, they use this word manifest a lot. As oh my in, God, we were ahead I'm of our not, times. We were, uh -huh. you know, the, we were ahead of our times, the Hare Krishna movement, you know, we always talk about manifest and manifest. But go ahead, sorry, <laughs> sorry to interrupt you. <laughs> That's okay. Um, so do you see how these are kind of diametrically opposed? Like, yes, like yes, people the, the, who, the, yeah, the big, mm -hmm flaw, the obvious, the 800 pound mistake in the room with the secret is that as far as I know, if I'm misrepresenting it, please correct me because I don't want to uh, unfairly criticize anyone or anything. But as far as it's been explained to me by desperately enthusiastic advocates of it, um, there's no real moral component. In other words, Prabhupada used to have a little thing he would say, first deserve, then desire. So, oh, God, that's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, so deserving is really what makes the universe go around. It's all about deserving. Yeah. And so if, if I want to attract something, well, maybe I should first try to deserve it. Mm. Yeah, I love that. That's a perfect way of bringing in the, the ethical sphere. Yes. And so maybe, yeah, maybe it's not, a, there's not a golden mean there. Uh, anyway, <laughs> maybe uh, move on. Synchronicity. Here's another common word. Synchronicity, I've noticed it was actually hugely important in my own uh, development, my own history, so to speak. But I don't actually know where to fit in synchronicity, how to even define it, and okay. where it fits in with with scripture, with Vedic by Krishna's scripture. Mercy, by Krishna's mercy, I have a dictionary here on my computer, and so <laughs> the Lord blessed me with a dictionary. So uh, it says the simultaneous occurrence of events which appear significantly related but have no discernible causal connection. Mm, In other words, okay. two things just like, oh my God, you know, like I came over to your house to see you and you happened to invite this other person that I really needed to see and you didn't know that. And so it's just like things that aren't, you know, like not like one thing, my coming didn't cause the other. Neither of us, myself and the other person knew the other was coming so my coming didn't cause the other person to come or vice versa, and you didn't know we were old friends. So nothing's directly causing anything, but it's an occurrence of events. Namely, this person came and I came, which are significantly related. And so- Goswami, I, I think I figured it out as you were talking. Okay. So we, we know that, that the whole universe is one thing. So it seems synchronicity is a reminder 
or it anchors us into that being in tuned resonating with the the oneness that one thing and uh what's the second part there i don't know should we take a commercial break while you're thinking about that anyway so <laughs> so, uh, so i'd like to sort of throw something in here and then you can respond to it mm-hmm. and that is um there is a sense in which synchronicity as i just read it from uh the dictionary the simultaneous occurrence like two things happened again together the simultaneous occurrence of events which appear significantly related but have no discernible causal connection that's very important no discernible which means that synchronicity at least the definition i read there does not say that the things aren't actually related it just says you can't see the related why like for example let's take that example i gave of let's say you invite me to your place and i go and you invite someone else and you have no idea that we were old friends we've been trying to find each other for years and so we both come you didn't know it none of us knew it so none of us caused it or intended it and then suddenly we're all together so in that sense it's synchronicity it's not synchronicity in the sense that dare i say it karma in other words it's it's sort of like i think the word that describes what's really behind synchronicity is destiny mm yes so when things are destined to happen then the surface unrelatedness the surface synchronicity uh is just the surface below that there's something destined to happen and so in that sense there are no coincidences right right and i think what my point is is that um it's not my point i'm you know kind of trying to figure this out uh but to to be spiritual to be connected to our soul and the super soul etc we we have to constantly know that there are no coincidences and there is destiny and there is a you know a plan for us that's on top of karma on top of that all those cause and effect reaction chains but there's there's also you know divine love and a divine plan for everything and synchronicity is like a major mechanism built into the universe it seems to help us go back right yeah well well actually synchronicity really just means that on our level on our human level like okay you say i didn't know you guys were friends well i didn't know you were coming so on our on the human level we can't discern the cause but on a higher level someone does know what they're doing and um there's something else i was going to say and i just uh i guess it's kind of you know it's like when someone yawns or really yawns so you forgot your point and i forgot my point so anyway it's um i was going to say that um oh i remember 
you said about how you know about karma and the way I would express that in sort of Western philosophical language is I would say karma, which basically governs you know everyone's destiny in this world, uh, is teleological because, in other words, um, telos the Greek word telos means a purpose or a goal. And so, in, phil in philosophy, teleology means there are objective purposes. For example, uh, if you decide that tomorrow I have to go and buy some fruit, and so you create a purpose for yourself. But in a sense, it's a subjective. If you decide, let's say tomorrow, before you get out, someone brings you a fruit basket and you don't need fruit. In fact, if you buy more fruit, It'll spoil before you can eat it. So you, and so therefore, so you cancel that purpose. So that purpose was subjective. You created it. You can, you know, dissolve it whenever you like. However, if I say that God created this world with the purpose, God created the law of karma with the purpose, and in this case, of course, as everything God does, the purpose is. Uh, uh, benevolent, you know, from the Latin benevolente, you know, desiring the good, it's benevolent, then um, then even if I don't believe in God, even if I believe as some very unfortunate uh, existentialists believe in the mid-20th century, such as Jean-Paul Sartre, you know, even if those existentialists, you know, they believe, you know, we're trapped in this uncaring universe that doesn't give us anything about us yeah and of course they got it completely wrong so what that means is the universe the law of karma is simultaneously just quid pro quo it's just justice you know you did this you got that you did that you get this and as you know that famous question of socrates do um the gods love certain action or, or are certain actions that we perform oh. as human beings are certain actions good because the gods love them? Or do the gods love those actions because they are good? In other words, are the moral laws governing the universe? And that's what karma is all about. It's just the playing out of the cosmic moral law. And so are those moral laws objective? In other words, if I do this, do I really deserve that? Or is it that there's some deity like in Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, they're just sort of whimsical, you know, adolescent deities that it's like Zeus will say to his wife, Hera, Hera, see that Trojan soldier down there? I'm going to wipe him out. But why, Zeus? Did he offend you? Nope, just don't like him, you know. I don't like his hairstyle or, you know, I just, or this, you know, Greek soldier that's opposing him, you know, he's my buddy, you know, he's my bestie, he worships me. So, so what, what, and Plato in the Republic, you know, complains about this. I mean, Plato makes this super radical uh, statement in the Republic, which if you can think yourself back to his time in Athens, he said that uh, Homer should be removed from the Paideia, which was the Greek curriculum. It was a very famous ancient Greek curriculum, which was considered so good that 
you know, all over the Roman Empire, people, it was like prestigious if you had a tutor or went to a school that followed the Paideia. In fact, uh, the Atlanta Iskon Temple is in a very, very beautiful neighborhood, uh, upscale neighborhood, and then right down the street from the temple, there's a Paideia. They still use that name for a private school. So, so the centerpiece of the Paideia, the centerpiece of the Greek, ancient Greek curriculum was Homer. I mean, Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey were not like Bibles. They didn't have that status, but they were kind of the main books that told Greeks who they were and, you know, what to do and all that. And he's the reason is, he says, because Homer portrays the gods, divine beings, as being basically jerks, you know, a lot of the time. And he says a real deity, a real divinity would be morally, if not you know, maybe a, a supreme god would be morally perfect, and even a demigod, a deity, would be at least morally superior to human beings. And so therefore, mm. and, and, and of course Socrates, who is the teacher of Plato, and he raises this question, at least, in, you know, Plato's Socrates, that is that um, are the rules we follow objectively reasonable? Or are they just the whims of gods? And so the answer is, of course, in the Bhagavad Gita, that they are objectively reasonable. And, and here's the test you could apply. In other words, if we just accept, let's say, common decency, common morality, which like don't intentionally harm anyone, and uh, sure, pursue your own interests, but be reasonably kind and generous to other people, don't be a you know self-centered idiot. You know, live your life, pursue your interests, take care of your family and friends, but just be a good person in the normal, decent sense. And so, if there was no God, what would you deserve for that? Or, or, or let's say, for example, I hurt another person intentionally, or for some selfish reason. What would be a reasonable punishment? And and so, if you look at the laws of karma, they should be reasonable in that sense. Okay, go go slowly. I'm kind of losing the thread here. Okay, so, well let me let me go so, back. Let me go back to my point of theology. I'll try. I'll try to tie it up here. And if okay. I don't, then you know you can always sue me. So, so so the point I was making about teleology is that karma is not merely justice. It's also mercy. It's also compassion. In other words, karma. You could imagine a law of karma where you do something and you just get the reaction. Like for example, you, let's say someone foolishly, let's say someone's cutting a potato and doesn't pay attention and cuts themselves. They have only themselves to blame. If, if you have a sharp knife in your hand, you'd better pay attention to what you're doing. Or let's say for example, someone steals from another person, gets arrested and goes to jail. So. Karma is not merely justice. It's not merely quid pro quo. It's teleological in the sense that it is justice, but it is justice that leads to improvement. It improves people. It purifies people. It educates them. It makes them wise eventually. And so here you have a okay. God. Yeah, God so, is not, so yeah. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. No, but, go ahead. but how does that 
how does that connect with synchronicity as being you know like a level higher as i said because right. you know that right when yeah, i said that yeah. you know okay. it, it kind of right. stimulated something in you and it then did. you so I'll let's go back together. to that yeah okay thank you yeah that's your job to you know keep us coherent so now we'll 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 walk it back to synchronicity because let's say let's go back to that example which i'm really milking here you know you invite me and you invite someone else let's just you know go back to that and so let's say it turns out that there is some good in our meeting the fact that i meet an old acquaintance that i couldn't find and it turns out it enriches both of our lives maybe even enriches the life of the host and so <clears throat> synchronicity sometimes because we sometimes we have we really have the distinct feeling or intuition that this synchronicity but in a way which is promoting somehow the good that it's mm. it, it's not just a because if if things just happen that we didn't really intend them and nothing really good comes out about it we usually won't dignify it with the name synchronicity mm. we usually apply that somewhat you know uh i don't know laudatory word to events which seem uncaused unplanned but somehow bring about something significant and and often in a positive sense and so I'm saying that that it's karma, but synchronicity is not because, in a sense, everything you know. But it, but it's a special kind of karma. It's a karma which benefits us, and 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 itself it shows the generosity, the good intention with which God created the law of karma. Okay, there we go. <laughs> Yeah, I love that. Okay, let's um, move on to, here's one that's very funny. We've both heard this before. Uh, old soul. And okay. If you've heard this, but it's yeah. the same idea. It's like, we have this idea of an old soul, someone who like, you know, they're, they're born and maybe they already remember some of their past lives or they're just right. naturally predisposed towards spiritual things right, and right. we call them an old soul. Yeah, yeah, so. let, let, let's, I'm eager to uh, explore that one. By the way, we're all getting, <laughs> uh, Ananda Leela, she's sending in some questions on Facebook, so eventually we'll get to those mm. too. Yeah, um, yeah, and, that's, and, and that's I'll, good. I'll, I'll give you a cut on those. Just kidding. <laughs> so. So regarding regarding old souls, um, here's in one sense it's absurd. In another sense, okay, it there's some reasonable meaning to it. The absurd sense is obvious. We're all eternal. We're all of us are equally old. Namely, we've lived forever. As Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, "Natvaham jatu nasam." Never did I not exist. Natvam, nor you. Name A, nor all name A Janadiba, nor all these rulers of the people. Uh, literally, nor indeed is it that we will not exist, literally, nor indeed is it that we will not exist. All of us, Sarvevayam, all of us, Atak Param, sort of, you know, from hereafter, literally hereafter. <clears throat> 
So, um, so in that sense, to say one soul is older than enough than another makes no sense because we've all existed. We we have all always existed. It makes <laughs> sense in this sense. I'll try. You know, here's the the sense in which okay, you can talk that way. To say someone is an old soul means that for a long time they've been aware of themselves as a soul. They have, mm. they've been aware of the fact that I'm a soul for a relatively long period of time. And therefore they have been trying to uh, work toward that ultimate self-realization for a longer time. So if you mean self-awareness or soul awareness, this is person is old in self or soul awareness. Excellent. Yeah, I could not say it better myself, and that's why I'm so happy to talk to you. <laughs> that's that literally perfect. <laughs> like exactly what I what I'm trying to get from this, and I, I know many people will be happy to hear that. At least happy to you know have a a real logical you know kind of more scientific um, understanding of this stuff. Um, all right, so another thing that's super common in new age spiritual circles is vibration, frequency, uh, tuning in. You know, these are all different words that have a similar kind of line going about them. So I don't even know where to begin here. Okay, but... well, I, I, I think I have a good point of departure. Was it saying okay. punto de partida? And, and that is, um, what we find in history is that people tend to analogize human life to the latest technology. So that mm. there was a time centuries ago when it was kind of sophisticated to compare the universe to a clock. Or, and then, you know, when we developed or with the industrial revolution to compare it to machines or and and then yeah. you get the radio and you start to get you know from from quantum mechanics which studies the subatomic world like electrons we get electronics and so then we start talking about frequencies and vibrations and so it's it's just kind of a very old tendency to draw life analogies from the latest technology and so um, that's kind of, I don't think it's a lot more than that. For example, we're talking right now, and I mean, happily, I think we, we really get along well in these talks, which I'm, you know, we're both happy. Me about. too. Yeah, and so I really don't see you as radio like, <laughs> as a physical radio. <laughs> you look more like a person to me than a radio. And so, <laughs> so we we could talk about like we're tuning in, but I think we're just talking, and we're having a good conversation. <laughs> oh dear Lord! Um... So maybe because I was never really like very much inclined toward mechanics, and I remember when I was in middle school, we used to call it junior high school, but that was a self-esteem issue. I swear to God, I'm not lying. 
So now you have to say middle school because the word junior could affect someone's self-esteem. But when, you know, in those days, it was Palms Junior High School, actually close to the temple. Los Angeles, Palms Junior High School. And so they made us take shops. Like, you know, everyone has to do everything. So I had to take a metal shop, which I, for me, it was like punishment. You know, metal shop and, and mm. radio shop. I learned Morse code, which I learned. I actually retained that for at least uh, 15 seconds after the semester ended. But one, one of the shops... <laughs> One of the shops we had was a um, wood shop with Mr. Brenner, wood shop. And um, so the whole semester, we were just like making these little ducks that were like napkin holders, like little duck napkin holders to take home and show our parents that they're, you know, here are your, here's your tax dollar hard at work because you know, we made something you can use. And so, <laughs> so, um, so I think, you know, the last week of the semester, I had my little duck and I cut its beak off. <laughs> and it was like my poor duck and I had to go to the teacher. You know? <laughs> but anyway, so I guess because I was never so inclined toward that. I mean, it, it's, you know, it has its dignity and it has great value. We all benefit from those who are inclined to those things. But uh, so I never really was uh, fascinated by technological metaphors. So there is a, there's one common uh, saying about this that, that especially uh, confuses me, but it seems like there's something real to it. It's when someone says like, raise your frequency and then you get it. Or so, so let me draw a quick corollary is like in, uh, in most religions, ISKCON, Christianity, et cetera, we, we typically use the word purity Yes. Like you need to purify yourself and then you kind of ascend to a closer to God consciousness. And then in the in the new age spiritual circles, they'll often say frequency and dimension. So you kind of raise your frequency, you vibrate faster, I guess, and then you go to like a higher dimension, which um I um <laughs> Of course, I mean, in a sense, everyone is free to use whatever language is meaningful to them, and I don't want to tell people how they should talk. But I would say that the metaphor of purity is ultimately takes us much closer to what's really happening. Because machines have frequencies, but they're not conscious. They don't love anyone. And so I think we can objectively evaluate metaphors by seeing to what extent they really, how many points of contact there are, how many profound analogies there are, and how many profound disanalogies there are. And so uh, raise your frequency. I don't know what that means. I mean, pure, I mean, I suppose I do, but like purity because if you think of water you know water is transparent when it's pure and and then it gets cloudy or murky or whatever when it's not pure and um and talking about transparent consciousness it seems to me it it gets at trans because when something is transparent 
it does not change the information that's coming through it. Like for example, there. let's say I look through my glasses. These, by the way, everything I'm wearing here is for sale. <laughs> Just kidding, that was a joke. So, I was thinking of selling advertising space on my shirts when I do these programs, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. So, um, if, if my glasses are, are clear and transparent, then I see exactly what's there. And of course, it's amplified by the lens, but, or if I look through a window, let's say, if I look through a window, if I, or, or the sky, when the sky is clear water, when water is pure. So, uh, what we really want, or should want to do, is to see what's really there. And that, of course, there's, we, don't have to, we don't have to bring something to reality, we just have to see what's out there. And so, um, if you look at the nature of, of the creation, we live in a universe of art. If we look at sand grains or, 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 or you know, what they, or snowflakes or you know, water crystals, we look anywhere. Anywhere you look closely at the universe, you find this super art. And so clearly, the world is a work of art when you really see it, and people are a work of art. A, a person who's really in higher consciousness, who has, who's a, a good, generous, kind, intelligent person, is a pleasure to be around and so and so it gets back to that old philosophical question of truth and beauty is the truth beautiful is beauty true and of course according to materialism beauty is not true because there's nothing but physical things and values like beauty are not true but when you realize we live in a bi-dimensional universe with both a physical and metaphysical element so so you don't have to you don't have to, um, of course we should try to improve the world by helping other people, but in terms of perceiving what reality is, it's already beautiful. All you have to do is make your consciousness transparent. I'm not sure like vibrating, I think if my consciousness was vibrating right now, I'd probably, basically, probably Mark and Day here would, would call 911. I mean, if I really started vibrating, and um, I'd probably have to be on an you know, urgent basis taken to a clinic. And so I think what's really happening is I don't, in fact, you know, the word Shanti, Om Shanti, peace, I think the, the idea of oscillating, of vibrating, at least in the ancient wisdom literature, is kind of a symptom that uh, you're really going in the wrong direction. Because when you're really in higher consciousness, you're at peace, you're, there's there's perfect tranquility. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, think of water again. I'm really gonna, you know, go with this analogy. If you, if you get water vibrating, it loses its transparency. And so why would you want to vibrate? I mean, I personally, like when you're a kid, you like to go on a vibrating machine, but at my age, the last thing in the world I wanna do is step inside of, you know, some wildly vibrating thing that makes me vibrate. I just, I really wanna be peaceful. And, and I would say, and, and according to the ancient yoga teachings, it's precisely when your consciousness is fully peaceful, it's like water, then its transparency manifests. Whereas when it's vibrating, it loses, it. you can't see anything. So, mm. again, I don't want to uh, be like the speech police here and tell people what words to use, but I think that the... Uh, 
the language, the metaphors, the imagery found in the Bhagavad Gita does the job a lot better and really tells us a lot more about where we really want to go. Yes, I agree. And uh, I really like how, you know, you, you took this word purity, which is, I agree, it's a much better way of, of talking about these things as they are, but, but taking the word purity and kind of thinking it more of, as transparent consciousness and to, to bring about peace, that's much more uh, real towards to what we're doing in a spiritual life. I wanna share just one thing about the, the frequency thing because uh, um, it's music. So I, I've noticed this very uh, vividly, that's a visual word, but I, very strongly uh, a few times in my life, I, I would listen to a song and it, it, it kind of took over me. Of course. And, and it, yeah, and uh, sometimes this is really good and, it, and it, I can literally feel myself kind of growing from just a few minutes of you know these musical sound vibrations whatever another time this happened i saw the apocalypse and it was an incredibly powerful mystical experience from just listening to a song so oh yeah uh, i uh music's a, a really part of my life i um i just posted some music kind of like neo-baroque music just uh, an hour or two ago but um i uh yeah, at times in my life when I've really been stressed, I mean, try being a leader in a religious institution. So sometimes I've just spent hours, I, I play keyboard, I, I especially like Handel, you know, Georg Friedrich Handel and Bach and other people. And so sometimes I would just spend hours just really absorbing myself. And, and I think, personally, I think the Baroque is, uh, which came right after Lord Chaitanya, by the way, uh, is, I mean, even historically, it's a historical fact, it was, in a sense, the most God-conscious great period of, of Western music, of, of popular music. I mean, you can talk about the, the Renaissance and about the uh, medieval music, which, which was just explicitly religious music, but in terms of music, which also was, you know, really, which was musicologically sophisticated and really concerned with, you know, giving people a good time, you know, musically, but at the same time being very profound, but See, but I, another thing I wanted to say, actually, before, before I forget it, maybe I did forget it, is that, um, like, higher frequency, because I, I really, you know, I compose music and I play music, um, in terms of musicology, I wouldn't understand what that means to go to a higher frequency. Because, let, let's say, for example, on a piano, you have, you have chords, you have strings, or a violin, and... and and some, sometimes you want, you know, like, like, a, like a higher note, and sometimes you want a lower note. And so it's not a universal truth that in music you always want to go to a higher frequency. It's just, it's just so, so as a, um, you know, going to my musical side, I, I don't understand what that would mean, going to a higher musical frequency. It's, to me, it's not that the, the music this is why it's really hard to talk about this stuff, right? But yeah, it's not the music that goes to a higher frequency, because if it was, then it would just be, ah, 
you know, just be like a really yeah, high pitched sound. And, oh yeah, your windows would shatter. Yeah, exactly. But what, what, what's happening is the it's something about our consciousness, our soul that kind of resonates with the music, and so. I know, but it's. I, I think just, about. I, it, I just think. Yeah. I mean, again, you know, I'm not the language police here, but <laughs> I, I just think it's it's not the most it's not the happiest metaphor anyone ever came up with. Frequency mm. means the rate at which something occurs or is repeated. You know, how frequent is it? Over a particular period of time or a given sample, mm. uh, the rate at which a vibration occurs that constitutes a wave. So I, 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 in terms of higher frequency, I just think it's sort of a, uh, it sounded good to a lot of people on closer examination, not a great metaphor. And um, I think if people talk about purity, they might actually make more spiritual progress. Could I just read quickly some questions here that we've got on Facebook? Sure, sure. Is astrology a kind of synchronicity? Oh, beautiful. That's a good one. So, whoever wrote that, uh, you know, we like your question. Vedic astrology is quite accurate. Um, I would say astrology, and this is something people don't understand, I think, in my humble view, and I'll probably, you know, get a lot of people dislike me by saying this. So, if you're one of them, I didn't mean it. Anyway, <laughs> it's, it seems to me that there's a mis popular misunderstanding in that whole area of gem gemology and astrology and you need to do this or that. And that is the stars don't actually cause anything. They're not causal. It's just information. It's just information. It's like, let's say you get a letter in the mail saying that you now owe this money or you've been admitted to a prestigious college, the letter didn't admit you. And, and, and but people, if you think about common psychology, let's say someone applied to a prestigious college and are waiting for the answer, and they're you know, going to open it. Of course, you already know, because if, if you get a big fat envelope, you got in. If you get a thin envelope, one thin little envelope, you didn't get it. Because he got in, there's all kinds of forms to fill out. But anyway, let's say you're waiting, and so if someone could say, oh, I dread the letter coming. But the letter is just some dead matter. It's just paper and ink and glue, you know, to close the envelope. And so the stars just give you information. It's just, it's information. And so the information like let's say that you will live a long life to give a typical thing. The fact that the stars are telling you that, the stars are not causing you to have a long life. What's causing you to have a long life is your own previous behavior. And so I think there's a sense in which astrology, and by the way, there's a reason why at different times Roman empires, Roman emperors uh, drove all the astrologers out of Rome. Uh, even though astrology is a big part of their culture. So it kind of, I, I think that astrology misunderstood, as it often is, kind of irrationalizes the universe. Because with the law of mm. karma, we live in a, a fully reasonable, rational universe where you get what you deserve. And, and 
and this is going to happen because you know because it's the right thing because it's fair because it's reasonable and with astrology it's like okay it's almost like I had this karma but if I wear a certain stone it won't happen and someone could say well part of my karma was to wear the stone that was also my karma to neutralize the reaction but I don't believe that God or the universe rewards people just for you know because if you put a certain stone on your finger let's say or, or, or you wear a stone because you want to avoid something that did not morally improve you I mean there's nothing virtuous about using this stone or you know you know performing some ritual there's nothing virtuous about it and mm. and and my understanding of Bhagavad Gita is that there ab absolutely is justice in the universe in fact Krishna says in those famous verses in chapter 4 why he comes to the world at all and he says dharma sangstapanartaya to establish justice because the Sanskrit word dharma and some devotees think it means a religious institution but that's not what it means uh, well it means many things but the dharma is the Sanskrit word for justice and so I mean there are other words but that's one of the main words and so Krishna says I come to restore justice in the world I come at a time when the world is being taken over by injustice and so Krishna says I reciprocate with everyone as you approach me so it really determines because Krishna is everything in a sense in the sense that the physical universe is his physical energy is is you know uh, external energy we souls are his internal energy in that sense Krishna says Vasudeva Sarvamiti when someone really becomes wise they see that Vasudeva Krishna is everything Arjuna says to Krishna Sarvam Samabnoshi Tatosi Sarvam you encompass everything therefore you are everything and so therefore when and that's why Krishna also says in the Bhagavad Gita that Jajata Mam Prapadyate Tam Sutaiva Pajamiya Hung Mamavart Manu Vartante Manushaparta Sarvasha that people in all respects human beings follow my path and so if at the latest count most human beings currently alive on earth are not in the Hare Krishna movement or or any similar movement may not be this gone and so so what does Krishna mean when he says that all human beings are, are following my path what does he mean I think what he means philosophically there is that whatever you choose let's say you choose atheism but you could not choose atheism if you didn't have a brain I mean colloquially you could say you have no brain but in the in the, in the anatomical sense in the physiological neurological sense you cannot be an atheist unless you have a brain to think atheism and Krishna made the brain and Krishna says in the Gita from me comes memory knowledge and forgetfulness so when you choose atheism you are simply choosing to reciprocate with God in that way in other words because the universe is God in a sense as Krishna explains in chapter 9 the universe is and isn't God and so if you choose that 
and you say, no, all that exists is the physical universe, but the physical universe is part of Krishna. So you are still, in other words, if Christ, because Krishna is everything, you cannot exist and not be relating to God in some way. If you relate to God in his manifestation of a physical universe, okay, that's your choice. If you, uh, let's say, are a philosopher or, or a mystic, whatever you're doing, you are reciprocating with or reacting to, responding to, dealing with, experiencing some aspect of God's existence. And so, and Krishna reciprocates. So, if you, let's say, go to your local gemologist and you think that a gem will stop you from suffering or do something beneficial, or otherwise you wouldn't pay your money for it, then, but there's nothing about that act which makes you more virtuous. And ultimately, the reactions we get are in obedience to moral laws. There's actually two things operating in karma. One is moral. Another thing is uh, karma just kind of respects your preferences. Like, let's say you really want to be a baseball player. So maybe your next life, you're born with a dad that goes out to the park and throws the ball around with you because you, know, you were a little bit pious. So there, there's a neutral area of karma where you get reactions which aren't really about virtue or, or, or sin. It's just about you're sort of picking what flavors you like, flavors of life flavors. But then there's another aspect which is moral, it's the moral law. And so you suffer, you don't suffer because of neutral choices. Like if you say that I like this house better than that house, or this song better than that song, and let's say the songs or the houses, or I mean, maybe if you like songs that talk about raping women and killing policemen, that may be a problem karmically. But let's say there are, let's say, like, I like apples, okay, you like bananas, or I like this music, you like that music, but they're both kind of the same type of music morally. But when you suffer, it's because of a moral issue. It's not because of a sort of a neutral preference for this or that on the same level. And so, therefore, people usually wear stones not because, you know, I... I like vanilla, but what would it be like to, to eat pistachio and really like it, pistachio ice cream? So my gemologist told me to wear this stone because it will develop in me, you know, sort of a taste for pistachio. No, that's not why people wear stones. It's not why people do all these astrological rituals. They do it because they don't want to suffer or they want success. But suffering and success are results of how you interact with the universal moral law and there's nothing moral about buying a stone. And so therefore, mm. what I'm saying is all these things that people do are not really addressing the root cause of happiness and distress. And so, um, so in that sense, anyway, I went on, let me read another question, uh, if I could. How to stay detached from mm -hmm. negativity in relationships which we want to work out, but it doesn't work the way we want. Um, being neutral is the option. Krishna consciousness, one-stop shopping. It's sort of like that big psychological Walmart. Or of course, obviously, that's not going to be an analogy a lot of people like. But what I mean to say is it's really, you know, one-stop shopping. You want to be happy. You want to free yourself from just 
unpleasant behavior that you tend to engage in or unpleasant mental behavior, become Krishna conscious. And, and uh, yeah, and see everyone as a spirit soul. See that everyone is part of God. Don't envy them. Don't become attached to them in a, in a material way. Krishna consciousness. Yeah, I, I just want to add on to that. Uh, earlier in our conversation, you said something which was really well said, and you may have noticed on my face, I went, ooh, because you're describing <laughs> uh, seducing someone. And and what you're doing is you're taking this, you know, pure eternal soul and saying, hey, come down to bodily conscious with me. And when you think about it that way, and you really understand it and you get it, it's gross. Yeah, it should really gross you out. You are you degrading know? someone who is meant to be an angel, who's meant to be, you know, just a pure soul. Yes, exactly. Um, so a lot of what I've noticed, a lot of these negative relationships that happen, they shouldn't have even happened in the first place. A lot of times, not always, but you know, when you're Krishna consciousness, when you're Krishna conscious. <laughs> and you are seeing people as souls, you, I mean, the seductive stuff doesn't happen, yes. not a lot at least, right, you know? Yeah. And, it's like in marriage, yeah. I, I just spoke to a very nice couple in the Northeast Brazil, uh, the girl's parents are excellent devotees and she's an excellent devotee, a disciple of mine, and she's about to get married to a very nice young man. And I was talking to them and I said that the most important thing you have to do to have a successful marriage, loving marriage, is never forget that your partner is a pure soul doing the service of a husband or wife. Mm. And as soon as I, let's say if someone's married and that person thinks, okay, you're my wife and okay, you have, you know, you do some spiritual practices. It's actually, you're a pure soul, you belong to God and I have the honor of, you know, of, of being your partner and, and let's help each other and let's work together, let's be a team to serve Krishna. But that's who, that's who you really are and that's who I really am. And so, you know, honoring the, even with the other person, you know, when two people live together, whoever they are, in fact, it can be, you know, guru disciple, if you're, if you're uh, you know, husband and wife, friends, if you're all the time with the same person, it, it's a challenge to you know, to really remember that I have to honor this person, I have to because people can get on each other's nerves and so on. And so it, it's a challenge because when you marry someone or if you live in a Sankirtan van with another person, you know, if, you, if you're with other people, to be with someone regularly and not forget who they really are. And, and so mm. that's, that's really what it's about. In all relations, not only husband and wife, parents and children, never forget that your child is really just a soul that, and, and so on. And among friends, between gurus and disciples, gurus have to remember who their disciples really are and vice versa. And so it, it's all relationships. Let me see if I can, mm. uh, I don't want to say knock out one here, but how about the term vibrate higher? Yeah, that's, that's uh, yeah, I say it all the time, not... I mean, frankly, it's like when I was young, I liked to go on those rides in amusement parks, and you vibrate, you, you know, roller coasters, and now I think I, you know, I'd, it'd be my worst nightmare to go on those rides. So I'm, a, I'm at a stage in my life where the last thing in the world I want to do is vibrate. 
Uh, I actually <laughs> want to stop vibrating and uh, I want to and, and just be peaceful and transparent and love Krishna and help other people. I mean, I'm not a, in the market for vibrating. So, Goswami, can, can yes. I ask you just one more question? There's yes, one please. more please. critical term here, yes. which is hard to categorize, is being present, being in the moment. So where does that come into play with, like, I don't remember in Bhagavad Gita if Krishna ever talks about it like this, but uh, how would you, you know, categorize being present within yes. Actually, Vedas? Actually, it is interesting, in the fourth canto, uh, with Puranjana story, which is an allegory, uh, the beautiful girl that that he's going to marry says to him when he when he's like, "Don't worry about your next life, just be here now." Literally says, "Ihadya," which means "be here and now." So, okay, first the positive side of be present. Um, it is a fact that in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna talks a lot about falling into dualities and since, since vibrating between, you know, bouncing between. And so one of the dualities that Krishna talks about the most is pain and pleasure. And, and, or, and another one is, you know, lamentation and, and, and sort of getting excited about things. So if you think about it, why would we think about the past? I want to leave room here for a good person and a good devotee to just, you know, indulge in sort of a reasonable amount of nostalgia. I mean, it's not that we can't ever think of the past because even Prabhupada used to think back with pleasure and nostalgia about happy times and so so. But that's not what we're talking about. But the past is gone. One thing that Hollywood does constantly that actually is unreal and against science is time travel. There are no time, <laughs> there are no time machines in the, in the Vedas. And because, in fact, the word for the past in Sanskrit is atita, which means that which has passed, that which has already gone by. So if you think of the word, so there is no past, there is no you know, even if, even if Superman rotated in reverse very quickly, he still couldn't go into the past. And so there's no past to go to. <laughs> Major Superman fan so, when I was a kid. So, funny image. Yeah, so, so there's no past to go to. And, and, and I'll talk about that, why time travel is so popular with, with, in Hollywood. And, and the future, it'll be, like in Latin language, they say avenir, is it? Which means to come, the to come. Uh, uh, uh in, in German, the to come, that which is to come. There is no future, it doesn't exist. And so what happens is that when you lament the past or miss the past, what it does is it takes you into Neverland, literally. It takes you into a consciousness where you're thinking about something that doesn't exist. And when you, and, and so lamentation is about the past. You know, it, it, it's about lamenting for something. And or, or if you, you know, hanker for the future, there is no future, there's only the present. So I think it's, it, it's the understanding that, and the word for 
uh, future in Sanskrit is bhavisha, which means that which will be. That which will be. And the word for present is vartamana, literally that which is happening. So the past is that which has gone by, the word in Sanskrit, tita. The future is bhavisha, that which will be, but it's not here now. It doesn't exist now. Whereas the word for present is vartamana, which means literally, it's actually a uh, present participle, which is a uh, you know word functioning as a, anyway, never mind. So it's vartamana means literally it is happening. It is taking place. And so the only thing that's actually happening is now, the present. And so to be present means don't lament so much or don't hanker so much for something that's not doesn't exist now that you forget what's happening right in front of you. And, and actually, Bhakti you Thakur know, talks about this in that famous poem, Adora Doriel, The Happy Day, where he says that, uh, how does he say it? Uh, something about, how does he say it? Do not lament for that which is, forget, oh, the, forget the past. Forget the past that sleeps, and ne'er, like never, the future dream at all. Forget the past that sleeps, and never the future dream at all, but act in times that are with thee, and progress thee mm. shall call. And so, so being present simply means don't get absorbed in something that doesn't exist, either because it's past or because it hasn't come. And, and in terms of psychology, as we know, when people suffer traumas, it's kind of like a badge of honor, you know, like I was in the Hare Krishna movement, I have PTSD. But anyway, so, so the thing is that uh, even psychologists say don't get trapped in the past. Let's say like maybe you had a bad relationship. But if you're so traumatized by that, if you're, if you're still trapped in that bad relationship, you can't recognize or embrace a beautiful relationship that's available to you now. Or if you're thinking too much about the future, you're not gonna take advantage of the opportunities you have right in front of your eyes. And so there is a real sense that the Acharyas recognize that being too much in the past or future prevents you from acting in the best way in the present. And so there is a Krishna conscious version of be present. But when people say be present, of course no one's present now because everyone's on their cell phone. So, but I think, you see again, it's like follow your bliss. It's nice if you know what you're talking about, which usually isn't the case. In other words, when you say be present, I would say, okay, B is the imperative, you're telling, you know, in other words, it it's grammatically entails you be present. So do you know who you are? Because if you are present as the wrong person, you're not really present. You're not really present to yourself. You can be in the moment, like, okay, I'm in the moment, I'm not thinking about the past, I'm not thinking about the future, but I believe I am the body. So I'm, I'm in the present falsely identifying with my body or falsely admiring someone or lusting after, craving someone else's body. 
So if I'm in the bodily concept of life, I may be present, but not as myself. I'm in the present under false pretenses, namely a mm. bodily identity. So that's another example in which all these nice little phrases like be present or follow your bliss, they're wonderful if you know what the hell you're talking about. And if you mm. don't, and, 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 and if we don't know what we're talking about, who we really are, then it's just kind of talk. And, you know, it's nice, like, be present, be here now, and maybe it's better than, you know, being trapped in the past or future, but it's, 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 it's nothing you could call spiritual. <clears throat> well, I have a, I do have a, just a few more terms here, can, can or I, we can, can just, take can another just, from Facebook. Yeah, let's, mm -hmm. let's do a, let's do a Facebook, because, uh, People send me enormous amounts of money from Facebook. I'm just kidding. So Krishna is all perfect. I'm just joking. I'm not doing this for the money. I really enjoy this. Krishna is all perfect and we are part of him. So how could we have committed uh, too much to wrong things to deserve to fall into this material world and feel too much pain here? Okay. Original sin. <laughs> oh my God, that was <laughs> that was a bad theological move. Original sin. Anyway, so um, Krishna is perfect. Prabhupada explains this perfectly, and we are part of him. So Prabhupada said we're qualitatively equal to Krishna because we're part of him, but we're quantitatively different. We are small, and Krishna is infinite. So. Um, but if Krishna did not, Krishna has free will. Krishna, in fact, is, the, is absolutely free because he's called Satya Sankalpa. Whatever he wills becomes reality. We don't exactly have that, you know, some, obviously. So to be part of Krishna in the sense of being his superior, conscious energy and not the inferior unconscious energy to be part of Krishna is to also have free will is to also have free will so how could you be God-like or made in the image of God we're made in the image of God not something in the sense that we can have human-like eternal forms in the spiritual world but also and very importantly we are made in God's image in the sense that we have free consciousness, we have free will, we are persons. I mean, if you think about it, imagine being conscious, but not having will, not having free will. I mean, when I just even start to think about it, it it's like, it's, it's horrific. It, it's like, it's like this, it's like the worst horror movie. I mean, I mean, imagine being conscious, but having no will. You can't do anything. There's no question of freedom, because freedom means freedom to do what you want. But if you don't want anything, you're just, I mean, to me, it's, it's, it's nightmarish, the idea of being a conscious being and not having free will. So Krishna gives you free will, and I, I think that, you know, this old question, you know, how could we misuse our free will? 
It's because you don't understand how godlike you are. You actually have freedom. You, I mean, freedom is godly. Freedom is godlike. If you think about all the creatures, even, for example, the lower species, and I, I do not mean any way to uh, negatively impact their self-esteem, but if you think of, which is, you know, the greatest sin in our age, to negatively impact someone's self-esteem, but so all the animals, if there's any, if you have any pet animals, those of you who are watching this right now, please take them to a safe space. <laughs> because this is a trigger warning for subhumans. Because, oh, <laughs> because if, if you think of, if you think of the lower species, and not in an ultimate sense, obviously they're souls as much as we are, they're part of God as much as we are, but in their present condition. In the lower species of life, uh, they don't really have, I mean, they're very much driven by instinct. They do have emotions, they do have feelings, we know that, and, uh, but they're, they're not really accruing karma in the sense that we are. So, I mean, we can't, it's hard to imagine, like, let's say, a, a, a vegan movement among dogs or something because they, they just, they're not there yet. So, so therefore, the fact that we have free will is truly a godlike power. A godlike power. And you cannot have free will if you're not allowed to choose. It's not, that would be a fake free will. In other words, why didn't God make us so we do the right thing? Because then you wouldn't be a person. I mean, so we, so that we automatically, we, we, we cannot, let me put it this way. Why didn't God make us so that we cannot do the wrong thing? Because if you cannot do the wrong thing, you cannot do the right thing. You cannot do... I always give this example. I, somehow I've been stuck for like the last 40 years with these same examples. Because I, I always say in the class, I'm going to think of a new analogy, but I never do. When the class is over, I, I just go and eat. So instead of, you know, thinking of an analogy. It's okay. I do the same thing. So... Yeah, so we're in the same club. <laughs> yeah, so I've, I've been giving this example for, you know, probably like three centuries that, you know, let's say you're walking down the street and you have some money in your pocket and it just falls out on the ground. And then a person comes along, let's say a mother whose children are hungry and she can't feed them. And she picks up the money and, and you know, basically saves her children. So that's a great thing. But... Did you do a good deed? No, you didn't. Because you had no intention to give that money. If the woman would have asked you for it, or you would have seen her state, then yeah, you get credit for being charitable. So if you cannot do the wrong thing, you cannot do the right thing, because the right thing can only be done intentionally. Unintentional good is not moral. It's not, you're not acting in a moral a, in a positive way morally if you didn't intend it you had no desire to help anyone you had no desire to do good it was beyond your control you just had no intention you, you had no intention then how can we say that he's a good person he arranged to drop his money in the street at the right no you didn't and so so God, in other words, I think the problem is like people ask endlessly, you know, why am I in this material world and everything? Why not just admit who you really are? You're a free being. You're a soul. 
take responsibility. Stop trying to blame someone else for the fact that you're stuck in a material body. And, you know, and like if I was in, it's almost like there's this type of, there's this argument. If I was in the spiritual world, you know, it's so great, you know, why would I ever leave? It, it's sort of like, a lot of times people give arguments which are based on premises which are beneath the surface. And so to really evaluate an argument, you have to take these hidden assumptions and premises, bring them to the surface, and then look at them and say, does this make sense? So, so the hidden assumption or premise in that argument is that it's sort of like a hedonistic argument that people uh, value above everything just sort of raw pleasure. In the spiritual world, everything is so beautiful, everything is so loving, everything is so blissful, there's so much bliss, and people always choose bliss over everything else which of course is not true. People, for example, if they love their children, they choose the happiness of their children over their own happiness. Or if, if you envy someone, if you envy someone, let's say you're married to someone. I mean, not you, but I, and I've seen this too many times. It's tragic. Someone is, is well married. You know, a man has a good wife. A wife has a good husband. And they're just kind of envious of the other person. Or they just can't appreciate what they've got and they leave that person and end up suffering. End mm -hmm. up having, end up suffering because they couldn't, you know, there's a song by Joe Tex. I highly recommend this, it's, you know, it's on YouTube. In the 60s song called, Hold On To What You've Got. And uh, it's a great song. But anyway, and it talks about this. So people do act against their self-interest. Because it's, and it's, you could say, well, if I was this, if I was pure, how could I feel envy, or how could I? But again, I think it's based on a, in a misunderstanding of reality. Because in fact, let's say like envy, some quality like envy or lust or greed or whatever, even in very small degrees, like little minuscule, just microscopic trace amounts. It's not some substance almost like saying like how could i ever get covid 19 in the spiritual world because there are no you know harmful viruses up there so it, it's almost like this idea that these material desires are like bacteria or viruses outside me they're not part of and, and they just sort of infect me and how could i be infected in the spiritual world but what Prabhupada said is we actually have free will. You're a free soul. You are godlike. You are a little god. Maybe not the same quantity as Krishna, but in your own little kind of your own little way, you are a god. And you actually have free will, which is a which is a godlike power. And you make choices and being in the spiritual world does not take away your free will. And so, and also Prabhupada said that when you, you know, after millions of lives in this world, when you go back to the spiritual world, it'll just seem like a bad dream. Now it seems to us like a long time, but when you, com oh. when you compare your, the time you spend in this world, when you compare it to infinity, I mean, by definition, any amount, any finite amount of time is infinitesimal compared to infinity. 
And so, anyway, uh, let's see, maybe one more question, then I'll be done with, uh, with Facebook, and I'll never use Facebook again. Just kidding. <laughs> what if there is a physical barrier, like a line that exists? These are interesting questions. What if there's a physical barrier, <clears throat> like a line that exists between the spiritual and material realms, and it occurs at the speed of light, and by saying vibrate higher, we are really saying approach crossing that barrier because everything is wave, sound, light, radiation, everything is Krishna's energy. And what if we can actually raise our consciousness to pass this barrier? Could that be a good interpretation? Um, it's an excellent question. It's a bad, <clears throat> but it's a, it's a bad answer. I mean, it, the question was, was, it's a very good question. It's kind of like doing all you can do for that language. So, so whoever wrote that question, really, I mean, I, I, you can't do a better job of trying to make that language sound good, but ultimately, no, it doesn't work. And the reason is because, um, first of all, the way you cross, there is a barrier, you know, there is kind of like the coverings of the universe. But you can't get through them like, okay, I'm just going to like some kind of sci-fi thing where I just start vibrating at this ridiculously high rate. I just sort of, and just sort of vibrate my way through the barrier. That that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen <laughs> because that barrier is not, you know, it's not vulnerable to high intensity vibration. What we it, it's really, like instead instead of Superman going as fast as he can in reverse, he he shakes himself as much as he can. Yeah, he vibrates <laughs> and just flies right out of the universe, or maybe the, <laughs> or maybe the Incredible Flash. But anyway, so, no, because you, again, vibrating, what is, it's physical, it's not moral. You go to the spiritual world by becoming so good, so virtuous, so pure, not by vibrating so fast. It's like, I'm a better person than you morally. Why? I vibrate faster. It's like, what does that even mean? <laughs> so, so I maybe because I'm not inclined towards all kinds of technical things, it's just I don't I have no idea what they're talking about. And so, um, yeah, the way you cross the barrier is, and and go out in style, you know, and sort of like, you know, if I come to airlines, you know, in the first in the first class compartment, is. We know, for example, the case of Dhruva. You become a pure soul. When you develop, or I, when we develop pure love of Krishna, then you can book your ticket on Air Vaikuntha. And it's, it's your pure love. It's, it's like that, it's like that I, think, I think it's a very, very beautiful song that was sung by, written by Curtis Mayfield and sung by him and his group, The Impressions, in the 60s called uh, People Get Ready. Uh, anyway, as an ISKCON guru, I'm authorizing you. I'm controlling all your behavior. So now as an ISKCON guru, I mean, but I, I, I recommend, it's just a beautiful, beautiful song. People get ready. It, it, it's about going back to God. And it was a hit in the 60s. And so one of the lines is, uh, there's like, like there's, you know, there's a place for those who love the most. And so those who love the most will go back to God. And uh, there ain't, and then one of the lines is, there ain't no room for the hopeless sinner who would hurt all mankind just to save his own. 
Have pity mm. on those whose chances grow thinner because there's no hiding place before the kingdom's throne. Wow. <laughs> and so Giant. frankly, I think, and that's of course because a lot of the, most of the best and most famous and successful uh, African-American black singers in the 60s and 70s, you know, Aretha Franklin certainly, and all of them, you know, Curtis Mayfield, they came right out of the churches. They came, that was gospel music. They, you know, and, 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 and you know, the best of them, they, they sang these beautiful, beautiful songs, thrilling songs. So people get ready. There's no hiding place before the kingdom's throne. And so, again, this impersonalism, this sort of like people are trying to robotize themselves you know, make themselves into robots. No, you know, my frequency, my vibration. It's just like, why do you <laughs> want to make yourself into a machine? I mean, being a free, pure soul, that's what you are. Why do you want to make yourself into a machine? And you think you can go to heaven by vibrating? It's like, what does that even mean? And so, um, when you love God, when you love Krishna, you will pass all the barriers and you'll go back to Krishna. I mean, you'll go in style, in glory, in light, and in love. You'll be taken back to the spiritual world. It's not about, you know, waves and vibrations. It's about love. It's about loving and, and being pure-hearted because love means that I'm not exploiting you, I'm not trying to make myself happy by using you in some way. I love you. I unselfishly simply want your ultimate good. And I have to know what that good is. You have to know what the good is to love. It's not like some stupid parent that, oh, here, you know, I know you like cocaine, Johnny. I bought some for you today. I hope you like it. They said it was, you know, they said it was a very good brand. And so, <laughs> You know, my mother, I, I was very, I had a really great, I had really great parents. I'm very grateful, actually, for my parents. And um, my mother used to tell the story, kind of laughing at herself, that she, I mean, she was, she grew up on a ranch in Riverside, California. She was very intelligent, but she grew up on a ranch. And then she, that sounds like people on ranches aren't supposed to be intelligent. Anyway, she grew up on a ranch and she was very intelligent. So she came to LA and um, she got married to my father and she had her first son, who's my older brother. And so he got a fever, you know, babies always get fevers. And so she was kind of panicked, she didn't know what to do, so she just took him outside to cool him off. <laughs> you know, because he was hot, so she took him out in the cold air to cool him off. Which is of course not what you do when people have fevers. So, but so I was like, so to love someone uh, I mean, you can love someone, but if you really love them, then, then you have to know how to help them. Like, let's say you mm -hmm. love someone and that person is sick, you have to know how to make them better. You have to, and, and, and if you really love someone and they do get ill, let's say, then you tirelessly search for a way, like, like parents love their children. If let's say, God forbid, someone's child is sick, seriously ill, the parents, I mean, they won't stop until they've found something to help their child. Isn't it? I mean, that's what love is. When you love someone, you just, you, you just will find a way to help that person. 
So how can you love really meaningfully if you don't know who you are, you don't know how to help yourself, don't know how to help other people, and just say, you know, I love you. What is that? What are we really talking about there? Just an emotion, an attachment? Mm. Yeah, that's exactly right. In that situation, it's an emotion, an attachment, and not much more than that. Yeah, so, um, you know, something that really amazes me, if you want to see the power of Maya, I mean, we'll kind of wrap up here, but if you want to see, really see the power of Maya, like Maya can really turn even a brilliant person into a donkey. And, of course, uh, that, that would, I, I should have allowed the donkeys who may be out there to go to a safe space. But anyway, so you have these people, like these, these atheists, who claim to be scientists. I, I've watched a lot of these debates with the famous atheists, and I stopped watching because they Me really, too. Yeah, they, they have no clue about what philosophy is. They don't realize they're making absurd arguments. But anyway, so here's a group of people, not only like, you know, sort of media atheists, but also scientists for atheists. Imagine if there is something like a soul, if there's an eternal soul or God, you can live forever. Forget religion. We're talking about survival. And if there's not a God, you will not exist forever. And so you get these people who enthusiastically are inspired to argue that I will not survive. I'm so enthusiastic about my non-survival. And if anyone says I will survive, I attack that person. I don't know about you, but that sounds to me like an extremely weird psychology. <laughs> I mean, yeah. how can anyone be that stupid? Unless it's my, you can say, well, that's what I really believe, but, but you don't know. You don't know that. You can't know that there's no eternal soul. There's no empirical methodology. There's no way you can know that. So the fact is, you don't know. Let's say, if you don't know, you're not religious. So, it's like, for example, let's say, again, God forbid, someone's hiking in the mountains, and they're trapped, and their water is running out, and their energy is running out. And let's say there's a couple paths you have to, let's say there's only one path that you can take. You don't know if it'll take you to a village or, you don't know that. You may die, but it's the only path. Do you take it? Of course you take it. Imagine people saying, no, that's stupid. Don't take the path. You know, it may not go there. Let's just stay here and die. Why would you argue that? I mean, no one would do that. So, again, if there's a soul, eternal soul, you, you, you exist forever. And if there's not, you are gone. You're dead, unconscious forever. Someone said in the class with Caltech, well, someone could say that dying is peace. No, peace is a conscious state. Non-existence is not peace because it's not a conscious state. They say rest in peace. That's well, anyway, we know how logical that is. Like, yeah, you're really in the ground there. Anyway, so, but my point is, how could people with PhDs and, you know, so-called learning dedicate their lives to, to fighting against their own survival? I, I know how. They're yes. on a lower vibration. <laughs> yes, that's right. We got to, exactly. <laughs> 
So I, I think the only way I can explain that everyone wouldn't just grab the only chance you've got. This is the only game in town if you want to survive. It's your only chance to live forever, to try to understand that there's an eternal soul. If you try and you can't find one, okay, no harm trying, but you tried. So the only way I can explain that all these so-called educated people are enthusiastically spending their whole lives to arguing that, that I, the person doing it, that I won't survive. They're fighting for their own non-survival. I mean, I think the only way you can explain that is to say that it's Maya. It really, it's illusion. It really reminds me of that case. It was a Brikasura was his name, the wolf demon. Brikasura that, um, you know, he worshiped Lord Shiva, gave Lord Shiva, Lord Shiva gave him the boon that whosoever head he touched, the head would crack, you know, just it's break into pieces, obviously causing instant death. And so then he tried to touch Lord Shiva's head, which was like, you know, talk about bite the head, you know, like crack the, the head that feeds you or something. But anyway, so then he, he tried to touch Lord Shiva's head and Lord Shiva fled. And, uh, and then Vishnu came and said, hey, calm down, you know, your heart rate's going up too high. Let's talk about this. So, and then he said, first of all, Lord Shiva is just a cheater. You know, he doesn't really give the boons he promises. And so, you, you know, you can test it right now. Touch your own head. So he's touched his head, and of course his head, you know, disintegrated. So, broke into peace. So, you could say, well, how could he be that dumb? I mean, you could say, you know, how could that really happen? How could that really happen? Take a look at modern science. Take a look at some of these atheist, modern atheistic philosophers. They are doing everything in their power to argue, to show that they will die forever. And that's what inspires <laughs> them. They get up in the morning and they're inspired to go to the office and, 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 and come up with you know, more and more evidence that they will die forever. Goswami, I, I just want to share something. Uh, this, this is one way that I've been able to uh, explain these sorts of things. Because it happens a lot when I talk to people who I know are smart, like intellectually, but they just don't get what I'm saying. And so one way you could talk about it is they're on a different frequency, they're on a different dimension. But another, and then you can use Maya, that's also that's better. That's more effective. They're an illusion. Another way is, is like it's a joke. So like a really good joke, you either get it or you don't get it. Right? It's not it's not an IQ thing. It's like sometimes this has happened to me so many times when I was younger, because I'm very analytical. So I could like understand the words in the joke, but I just don't get it. Didn't see the humor. And then sometimes later you go, oh, and then you get it. So that's one way I think about yeah. these sorts of things. Yeah, no, it is. But unfortunately, in a joke, if you don't get it, it's like, okay, you're not the life of the party. But if you don't get the soul, the consequences are, are really bad. So, yeah, yeah so it's, um, but even if, you see, my point is, even if someone didn't have realization of the soul or didn't really wasn't it but but how could you 
you'd be working hard to try to see if there is one because that's your only chance to survive. So I think that's an mm. example of Maya just making people into complete fools. So they're dedicating their lives mm. to their own eternal non-existence. <laughs> okay, that's maybe a, a good place to end. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. I really enjoy this. I, I was I was saying to the devotee here, sort of joking, that you are the uh, Vedic Joe Rogan. So... <laughs> Well, I, you know, I hope so. That's where, that's where I'm, that's where I'm, that's my material ambition. You know, that's, that's my marketing plan. And uh, I'm going to stick to it. And I'm going to be very upset if I fail. And uh, joking, of course. I know, I know. Anyway, I want to, <laughs> I, I want to thank you. I appreciate very much that you uh, invite me to do these programs. And uh, also, I want to thank all the devotees. Uh, who are watching on Facebook? I appreciate uh, appreciate you watching. It's nice to have you here. We're all together, and uh, so thank you all very much. And I guess we'll end it yeah. there. So yeah, thank thank you, all the devotees out there. Those are great questions we got. Thank you, Goswami. Uh, would you like to come on again in the future? Sure, sure. I uh, that would be that'd be awesome for me. Okay, thank you all very much, and uh, everyone take care, be safe, and Hare Krishna. So I'm going to end there.